This episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is sponsored by ArtLogic. ArtLogic provides integrated technology solutions for the art world. ArtLogic works with galleries, artists, and collectors worldwide, offering an inventory management system, websites, and apps. To receive a 10% discount on selected ArtLogic products, visit www.artlogic.net slash podcast. That's www.artlogic.net slash podcast to receive a 10% discount now. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. In this week's episode, we're here with Kelly Crow, art market reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Kelly was in Miami for Art Basel, and she's here to share her insights and observations from all the festivities of the week. Kelly, it's great speaking with you. How are you enjoying your few days back since Miami? Are you recovering? Yes, I am. I've had to pack my flip-flops, but other than that, I've fully recovered. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Good to hear that. We, we read a lot about some softening for art at the fair at the higher end of the market, with really a lot of stronger demand for artworks at the lower, more attractive price points. Was this kind of divide apparent to you at the fair? And if so, what did you read into this? I feel like all year long we have seen this sort of steady softening of the market overall, particularly at the at the high points, the you know the ten, twenty million, forty million plus uh, price points. Now, what's interesting is that the art market watchers will tell you the masterpieces sell well in good markets and bad, and that the softening should show up in the middle or the lower range pieces, right? That everyone wants that coveted Van Gogh, but not everyone wants the so-so Van Gogh. That's the the rule of thumb. And what's been really fascinating to watch this year is that the middle market, honestly, has held its own. It's been okay, which tells me that there's still a lot of depth in the market, that there are not a lot of um, bidders just sort of running for the hills. They're still participating and bidding on things. But what I am seeing is that the higher the prices, the, the thinner the air becomes, right? And so you have billionaires who have plenty of money to spend on these pictures, but fewer of them seem to be showing up sort of in the moment. Um, and that's, that, that is more apparent, I think, in the auction houses than at a fair like this. But you still see, um, you know, fewer people going for, you know, the $18 million Andy Warhol portrait at Gagosian. And yet I saw a lot of booths where some pieces between, let's say, one and $50,000 um, did pretty brisk business. Um, there in a fair where it has you know hundreds of galleries like a, I mean like Basel you never know sort of who's going to do great or not but I I felt like there was a lot of comfort zone below a million um, and certainly below five hundred thousand which bodes well for a lot of the you know a lot of the younger artists um, who are afraid of getting eclipsed if there's a market downturn. As the art world continues to attract new collectors and more spectators attend these major art fairs, are galleries changing their strategies when they come to these fairs in terms of what kind of artworks they show, whether it's certain types of aesthetics or even artist names or prices? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, most dealers of major galleries now are used to doing about a fair a month at least. So in a way, it's become both strategic and, and ho-hum for these galleries to go to all these fairs. Um, I feel like for Miami, though, um, definitely there is a feeling that it is sort of the the New York of Latin America, right? So a lot of galleries uh, from Brazil, from Argentina, from Colombia, all are coming to this fair to sell to the diaspora um, and to New York. So you've got that going on. You also have a lot of New York galleries and California galleries bringing pieces that they think may or may not appeal to 
um, to Latin American collectors. And so, for better or worse, what you are seeing is some some sort of big, colorful pieces. Pieces I saw quite a few palm trees. I'm not going to lie, like quite a few palm trees. Um, artwork that features palm trees, <laughs> which is a little gimmicky, but it makes sense. Like, which fair are you going to take the palm tree art to? Well, you know. I mean, duh, of course you're going to take that to Miami. So there's some of that that goes on. Um, there are others that see Basel um, in Switzerland and Basel in Miami as sort of the two heavyweights. Um, and so they will then do a solo show of an artist um, that they feel like needs a good push. Um, Pace is a good example of that. They brought um, more, I mean, they brought, I think, close to 20 pieces by Louise Nevelson. Um, which is a sculptor who does these sort of black wooden assemblages. Um, she was, um, you know, uh, huge in the 60s and 70s. Not as often traded now, but when they brought this sort of big show of her work, it really paid off. They sold 16 of her works on the first day, and they were priced between 75000 and a $1 million. So that sort of doing a big push in Miami when they feel like they've got the crowd, when they've got the right caliber collector on hand, um, can really pay off for a gallery, you know, uh, strategically. It's a tradition now that during Basel Miami Week, certain top collectors who are based there open up their private museums for anyone to tour. Especially with the proliferation of Instagram, pictures from these collections end up all over the internet throughout the week. How are these collectors now perceived by other collectors and those in the trade, and how much influence do they have? Mm, that's a great question. I feel like the collectors in Miami do enjoy a disproportionate influence um, compared to some others simply because they have the the forum and they have the crowd. I mean, there's not a moment in the history of Dallas or Cleveland or, you know, I don't know, Tacoma or Seattle when the whole art world descends, you know, 70,000 of the best collectors and dealers descend for a week and just sit around. I mean, a lot of collectors come for the main fair on Wednesday, but then they spread out and do a lot of other things for throughout the rest of the week. So that gives a great opportunity for these local collectors to open up their collections and, and really show off the artists that they're into. And I have seen time and again those artist prices really skyrocket. Obviously, when it comes to the Rubel collection, Don and Mary Rubel did a big push for Oscar Murillo, um, this Colombian artist, a few years ago, and Murillo's prices skyrocketed You know, after that. So this year you saw... Donna Marabell come back again with a collection of women artists. Um, and I always go to their collection again to sort of see which artists are they really pushing. They gave a lot of bandwidth to um, uh, an artist named Sonia Gomez who makes work of, like, she collects her friends and family's hair and then sort of mats it into these almost rug-like furry strips and then makes artwork out of it. To me, that's a tougher sell. I mean, not a lot of people want other people's random hair in their homes. But because the Rubels have this sort of big gallery-like space, they can make room for it. And, um, and you know, it looks very dramatic and strung up almost like streamers, you know, around this huge, vast room. I would not be surprised to see more of Sonia Gomez in the future. You know, there are other... Um, artists as well that got just got a real big push at the Rubels. So it'll be interesting. I mean, I made a, a note and took a lot of pictures myself and, mm -hmm. you know, time will tell um, how they, how they fare in the future. You wrote an article just as the fair was getting underway about five younger artists on the rise that were featured at the fair. Do you want to tell us a little bit about some of those artists and how they ended up doing at the fair? Yeah, this is the thing where, this is where I come to the fair to find, and I, and I found that a lot of collectors have as well, is that at the end of the season, you've seen a lot of things 
but you still have a little bit of curiosity to try to find someone new. I mean, that's sort of the the ultimate appeal, right, of a fair is to come and, and discover the next so-and-so. Um, and, and Miami is just a great palate cleanser, kind of wedged between the fall sales and the spring sales. It's just a nice chance to just sort of come in and breathe and do some discovery work. So um, I found that the um, Mexican artist Jose Davila had a great... Uh, a great week, uh, Galleria OMRA, uh, Mexican gallery, um, sold a, a bunch of his works. He does sort of these modern, funny reinterpretations of modern masterworks, and, and lately he's become very taken with Roy Lichtenstein. So he had a new series of works where he sort of looked like a comic book style painting by Lichtenstein, but instead Davila had cut out the woman's face. So you just see the silhouette. So those were really both wry and funny, but also recognizable. So if you couldn't afford a Liechtenstein, you could get, you know, a mm-hmm. Davila for $35,000. It looks <laughs> good in your home and also has this funny backstory. Um, Sean Kelly and uh, a gallery in Copenhagen, uh, Nikolai uh, Walner, also represent Davila. And they had um, some of his sculptures. And in this case, he's sort of, in a way, evoking Richard Serra because he takes these huge countertop-sized marble slabs um, and he sets them at these interesting tilts, you know, playing with the same ideas of space and gravity that Sarah does, but instead of, you know, forging them in this very expensive, you know, steel, Davila literally just holds them upright with a series of ordinary ratchet straps, like the kind that you would do literally just to bundle things into the back of your pickup. So it's both commonplace with common household materials and yet also um, conceptually pretty pretty sharp. So Davila did great. Another artist I really liked was Wardell Milan, um, originally from Tennessee, but went to Yale. He's um, done a really great job of sort of interplaying photographs in funny ways by sort of using an exacto knife to cut around uh, boxers' gloves and, um, and different figures and sort of reposition them in new ways. Um, MoMA has him in the Greater New York show, and uh, David Nolan... I think did really well selling some of his new n- new tulip paintings. He's been doing paintings of tulips as well for a while, but these new ones sold for about fourteen thousand a piece on the first day. Um, another, you know, other other plenty of others. Harold Encart has sort of been hot now for a while, but certainly he really is poised to break through to a broader audience now. He's a Belgian artist. What I love is that he kind of embodies. I think the best friend that we would love to take a cross country road trip with, like he's very, he has this sort of cheerful wanderlust in his works. Um, he recently drove across country from New York to LA and back again. And he sort of just uses his trunk like a studio and draws different scenes that, that he comes across. He has kind of a surreal take on them. Um, but his, uh, oil stick drawings are fun and easy to live with and easy to probably sell. David Kordansky um, uh, sold one for about $40,000 on the opening day. Um, I think one of the, my, my very favorite piece is actually one that's not relatively expensive, but I really love this piece by Fritzia Irizar. It's I-R-I-Z-A-R. She's a um, Mexican artist as well, and she um, has done some studies into... Um, the symbol of the um, of a cap, that a hat that was used um, in antiquity to signify a freed slave. When a when a slave would be freed, they would get to use this. They would get to wear this sort of slouchy cap, and this slouchy cap shows up in Delacroix paintings. It's on Mexican currency. 
it's become a de facto symbol of liberty. And what this artist did, which, what Fritzia did, was she wove, she used gold thread to weave this hat, but then she, the loose end there at the end, she attached to a series of uh, gears and pulleys um, that she then hung up around the, ga- around the gallery booth. So that then over the course of the fair, these little gears sort of slowly turned and slowly turned and um, pulled at the sort of the, the cap and, you know, essentially the, the hat by the end of it had just sort of dis- unspooled, you know. Um, and I think the, the gallery, which is Arredondo, um, it says something interesting about how slowly but steadily, right, our freedoms can be eroded, how we don't even notice it, um, and obviously it being gold thread uh, layers on an economic component there of what role does money play or not in what we're willing to give up. So I decided it was layered. It was easy to watch, easy um, easy to see sort of what was actually happening. And then it also raises fascinating questions because then the thing that she's created no longer exists anymore. So that raises fascinating questions about value to me because the whole point is for it not to exist anymore. So I think uh, Massimiliano Gianni had also said he he you know was smitten with that piece. So she'll be a fun artist to watch. Um, and again, her price that the price for that piece was about twenty five thousand dollars. So, um, not not the million dollar splurge, but certainly um, it, it uh, stood out for me from from a lot of the other artists that were there. Yeah, and you you said uh, Miami, the fair. It's a great place to see and experience young artists and their works. Not a, you know, it seems they, it, the fair seemed to really establish itself as kind of the second place after Basel in Miami. It showcases primarily emerging artists. Do you feel like with the increased popularity of emerging younger artists on the contemporary art scene, are you seeing Nada's status there during the week elevate? Are you seeing more people who maybe didn't attend it in the past just went to Basel, now they're making sure to go to Nada as well in case they discover some of those younger artists? Yes, I mean every every major collector that I know of will go to several different satellite fairs. So I heard good things about Nada this year. Scope. Some people said, I mean, Scope has good years and bad years. This year, I heard good things about Scope. Um, several people went to Pulse and found that it, they thought it was getting stronger. Untitled has been a favorite of mine for the last few years. Um, I feel like just the group of galleries they put together has always um, been uh, been pretty strong, and. Uh, then I, you know, I ran into Michael Hort the night before the main fair opened, and he was raving about the little the littlest sister fair, the sister the fair, sort of a f- artist from Florida that was over in Little Haiti, and sort of, you know, they they will find if the art is good, you know, collectors will find you. So um, that's uh, I think certainly Nada is uh, for me kind of an older warhorse of these fairs. I mean, they've been doing it for a while now. I, they they were in existence for you know, all 10 years that I've gone to Miami. So in a way, they're not a new fair to me. They're way they're just another good stepping stone fair. Um, and I feel like the testament of NADA is that it, that it has remained. There are a lot of fairs that have come and go, have come and gone, and we don't hear about them anymore. But NADA sort of, I, I, you know, I plan on it being there every time. There's not a question for me that, you know, that it's going to exist. So that, in a way, is a nice testament to its relevance. Kelly, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and recapping the fair for us and sharing your insights as well from Miami. And you're also tweeting all the time. Uh, what is? I highly recommend our listeners follow you. What is your uh, Twitter account? 
Yeah, my Twitter handle, and I'm also on Instagram, which is also, again, a fun way of posting pictures of art. It's the same handle. It's just Kelly Crow WSJ. So find me on either one of those and uh, let me know what you like. Perfect. Thanks again, Kelly. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by ArtLogic, providing integrated technology solutions for the art world. ArtLogic works with galleries, artists, and collectors worldwide, offering an inventory management system, websites, and apps. To receive a 10% discount on selected ArtLogic products, visit www.artlogic.net slash podcast. So, whether you're a gallery, artist, or a collector, you can take advantage of this offer by visiting artlogic.net slash podcast.